So, um, for those of you that are visiting, by the way, it's uh, lovely to see Liz and Tom and Valda, Fiona here today. You're all back in the fold. It's very nice to see you. Um, just want to give you a little bit of context um, before I get cracking, really. So, uh, three years ago, we uh, bought the building next door. It used to be four cottages. It was knocked through to be a doctor's surgery and then became offices and then had been vacant for four years with a sense of vision of what God was calling us to do into this community for his kingdom to uh, set the captives free, to release those in debt from their debt, to feed the hungry, to create a place of well-being where people who feel isolated can find a home and be okay, even if they're not okay. Somewhere where the kingdom of God could be more expressed, the goodness and grace and love of God could be seen. And uh, little did we really know, I think, of what God has ahead for us, and I think that's still true. And on Wednesday night, we spent some time together worshipping and in prayer around these things that are on the board, and some of these post-it notes here, some of the things that people prayed and shared together on Wednesday night. And through this month of September, as we've been aware of getting to a critical point, we've been talking about what is God asking us to give to him. And we've talked about trust and obedience. And we're talking a little bit about giving. So if you're not regularly in church, uh, we very, very, very rarely talk about giving and money, but today is the day. So you can leave if you wish, but uh, we don't often do this. So I'm going to talk to you from Malachi today, and uh, put that on that side. Um, Malachi was around the same time as Haggai and Zechariah, so of course you're now entirely clear about what we're talking about. This is about 100 years after the return to Judah of the people from exile in Babylon, modern-day Iraq. So they've come back to Judah, things are not great, Jerusalem is relatively deserted, the farmland is largely barren and uncultivated, the recent harvests have been poor, locust swarms have come and decimated the land. They have completed the rebuilding of the temple in 520 BC, but it's really rather small compared to Solomon's temple. And there's not quite so much gold, and it's not quite so glorious, and it doesn't really boost the morale of the people in quite the same way that Solomon's temple did. They had a palace, but no king. The people were getting a bit disillusioned. They were a bit disappointed, even despairing, asking themselves the question, was it really worth coming back to the land? And so they attended the temple, but largely out of tradition. There was ritual without reality, and it really wasn't a priority for them. They were asking, what is the minimum time I can get away with in religious activity? When I look at my week, what is the minimum time that I can get away with? What is the minimum amount of money or offerings that I can get away with? And to be fair, Malachi says that the priests were no better than the people. They were all as bad as each other. They'd become casual and careless, and their religious attitude was impacting their moral life. And so things were starting to fall apart there as well. And of course, well, they blamed God, because isn't that what we do when things don't work out quite how we think they should? 
because the vision hadn't worked out exactly how they had expected it to. Sounds a little bit familiar. And the timescale hadn't worked out exactly as they'd expected it to. And that also sounds a little bit familiar. And everything was beginning to fall apart, but perhaps that's where it's different. And Malachi comes and he challenges the people. And he talks to them about their giving. Because the reality is that the nation's giving patterns were a consistent thermometer of their spiritual condition. When they were called towards God and his priorities and the things that he wanted them to invest their lives in, well, then they didn't give in time or offerings or money. But when they were fervent and engaged and passionate about God, well, then they gave. And there was expression of generosity. I wonder how much our giving patterns are a thermometer of our walk with God, of the reality of our relationship with Jesus. When their hearts were kindled with a spirit of worship to God, then of course they overflowed with contagious expressions of generosity. How can that not be true? When we worship a God of grace, of unmerited, undeserved love, when we worship a God who is good, a God who gives and gives and gives again, how can we not be like him? But when their hearts turned inward to ingratitude, to complaint, and even to idolatry, their hands withheld. And they became self-centered, worried about acquisition and accumulation. That little word, more. Always more. Never enough. And the more their hands withheld, then the more their hearts turned away from God. And so the first challenge that Malachi issues to them in verse 7, let find my Bible. <laughs> it's hiding on the back. Is this. Turn back to God. Turn back to God. He says, return to me and I will return to you. Because really this is an issue of the heart. Primarily. It's an issue of the heart. All relationships ultimately are based upon the heart. All our responses are based on our heart. And the covenant relationship between God and his people is breaking down. God's commitment and love is unwavering. But the people are neglecting their relationship. Return to me and I will return to you. But of course God never goes anywhere. He's just waiting for us to turn around. Return, obviously here is Hebrew, but in the Greek, and we've said this many times, just means that 180 degree turn, that I'm walking in one direction and I turn around completely, I go in the other direction. And Malachi is saying, return to me. As we were sitting there worshipping, I just had a sense that maybe... God's word to some people here today is actually that. And frankly, you can go to sleep for the rest. Because actually, he's just saying, return to me. And maybe you're saying, well, I've been a Christian for like 25 years. He's saying, return to me. Return with your heart. Return with your whole commitment, with the whole of who you are. Return to me. 
Come back to me, I will return to you. But actually his challenge to you this morning is actually about your heart. About your heart coming back to him. Because God will address giving, but always in the context of love and relationship. We don't pay him to love us. We love him and so we give. And then he says to the people, his second challenge, stop robbing God, verse 8. Stop robbing God. The story is um, told in an Israeli newspaper in 2011 of a lady called Amat who decided, as a big surprise, to buy a new mattress for her mum. So she bought the new mattress and she installed it within the house and she took the old one and she put it at the end of the garden to be collected. Her mother came home. She saw the new mattress. She completely went hopping mad. She was totally distraught, overwhelmed. My daughter said, what, what's going on? It's just a new mattress. She said, I have kept my whole life savings stored in the old mattress. Her daughter said, Mum, how much was that? She said it was £700,000. So they rushed, of course, to retrieve it from the bottom of the garden, but it had already been picked up and taken to the local dump. So they went there, but it had already been shipped to one of three landfill sites along with 3,000 tonnes of rubbish. So they went to the first site, but it was fruitless. And they went to the second site by the Dead Sea. The manager there, Yitzhak Barber, said this. They were desperate. Of course they were. He put on extra staff to prevent the tre- uh, treasure seekers from coming in and to help them find the mattress. They searched for the whole night, but they never found the mattress. By this time, the press were involved. And they came and they interviewed the daughter, Anat, and she said this, people have to keep everything in proportion and thank God for the good and the bad. The newspaper also reported that the mother gave no comment. (laughs) Money makes people behave in strange ways, doesn't it? Even talking about it makes us act a bit weird. But you know in the Bible there's 500 verses on faith, which seems quite important, doesn't it? 370 verses on loving one another. 270 on prayer. And more than 2,000 on money and possessions. You see, it seems that God doesn't have a big problem talking about money. And so Malachi says to the people, that they are robbing God. And the people are a little bit dense. They're a bit shocked and surprised. And they say, have we done that then? And God says, in tithes and offerings. See, the purpose of tithes was to support the priests and the Levites and those who served God vocationally. It was also to meet the needs of the community, the poor and the sick, the orphans and the widows, and to meet the expenses of carrying out the temple operations. Broadly, the same things that we use it for now, in fact. And all that was brought to the temple. 
And it says to us that the bulk of our giving should be through the local church. Not necessarily all of it, but the priority. Tithing was set up before the law was given. Genesis chapter 14, if you want to check it out. And here's a few verses that cover that kind of thing. Deuteronomy 14, verse 22. You must set aside a tithe of your crops, one-tenth of all the crops you harvest each year. Proverbs 3, verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. And then some verses from the chapters that Phil was speaking about last week. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 7. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly, and give according to what you have, not what you don't have. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Tithing. It wasn't, of course, just cash. It was animals and it would have been really quite entertaining and grain and oil and all manner of things. Whatever they had, they gave a tenth to the Lord. But the reality is that it all belongs to God, doesn't it? Not just the tenth, but the hundred percent. It all belongs to God. We are stewards of that. Tithing was God's way of taming our desire to have more. Because if you give, then you're always having less. It helps us to tame our desires, and particularly the desires of our culture. It prioritizes God, and by doing so, defeats the idol of money, which is such a powerful call to us. Tithes were just the start. There was offerings at all sorts of occasions that people brought to God, to the temple. Under grace, we respond to the generosity of God. And we can never, never outgive God. We can never outgive God. And we can never really give him what he's worth. Because he's worth it all, isn't he? But we give from our hearts. And the third challenge that Malachi issues to the people is this that they need to start trusting God. He says this, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Bring the whole tithe. Bring your money, bring your animals, bring your grain, bring your oil, bring everything into the house. He says, let's start there. Let's start with the basics, shall we? And maybe for some of us, that's the bottom line today, that we need to start there, with the basics. Let's try and find the right side of the page. (laughs) You know, the main reason that we deviate from trust is fear, isn't it? The main reason that we deviate from trust is fear. It was the same then. People were anxious about the future, Anyone here anxious about the future? They were fearful about what following through on their commitments might mean. We face that, don't we? They were facing heavy taxation from the Persians. You just need to change the word Persians. They were saying, 
Our budget is too tight. We can't pay the tithes and the taxes. We need to choose. Well, we experience that, don't we? And God issues them a very unusual challenge. He says, test me in this. Now, there's a fair amount of scripture which says, don't test God. But on this particular occasion, God says to his people, test me. Try it. What he's saying is, I dare you. Do you ever used to play that? I dare you. God is saying, I dare you. Test me. What do you think I'm like? Do it. Be obedient. Fulfill your covenant commitment. Test me and see what happens. I dare you. If you go back to Proverbs chapter 11, for just a moment... It says this in verse 24. One man gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Last week at the end of uh, the service, Norman Peterson, I don't think it's here, no, he got... He got up and, uh, and he was sharing something about the wonder and complexity of God's creation. And all I can really remember is um, something about a million beetles or something. But as he was sharing, it just triggered a thought in my mind about a poem that I hadn't looked at since I was probably about 19. And I knew I had it somewhere in a file somewhere. So I spent most of the week searching for this poem. <laughs> Because it reminded me of this poem, and there's, it's, you won't necessarily love all of it, but I'm going to read it to you, because there's so much about it that is just so wonderful. When we think of these words that God has said, test me and see what I will do. And this poem is called, You're So Extravagant, Jesus. So I'm going to read it to you. You are so extravagant, Jesus. Unbelievably extravagant in everything you do, you made a superabundance of things that are considered of little value. How many cast a second glance at sunrises and sunsets, yet both go flaunting around the skies like women parading knee dresses? How many of us bother our heads about a field filled with varnished buttercups? We can't eat them. Yet you find buttercups so cheap and fascinating to produce that golden carpets flop around everywhere. Then there are the huge heaving seas. Why make so much water, Jesus? We can't drink it. And all those snowflakes endlessly parachuting to earth. Why send so many? And why each one a different pattern and shape? Sheer extravagance. No, Jesus, you are by no means economical. Even a picnic on a hill resulted in 12 baskets filled with leftovers. When Mary of Bethany was extravagant in her worship of you, people cried, economize. You said, this woman's extravagance will be praised and remembered forever. Yes, my younger brother, you are beginning to glimpse a hue in the rainbow of my character. 
Creation demonstrates my extravagance and may be considered outlandish, preposterous, yet it symbolizes my love for you. Common sense is finite, a companion of timidity, and timidity produces economy. I was not sensible or calculating or precise when I loved you from that hillside. Economy takes no risks. Without venture, there can be no adventure. I tell you, my younger brother, that alongside wealth, economy has been deified. However, I make no allowances for cutting cloth accordingly, nor for hoarding for rainy days. You must give yourself extravagantly. The security and the apparent wisdom of economy is opposite to the nature of my father, who delights in feeding millions of birds with billions of insects, who cultivates grasses and invents flowers simply for the joy of it. Extravagance. Is that something that we think of when we think about God and giving? That he is extravagant. He says, test me and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven to pour out so much blessing you will not have enough room for it. Now that's a good promise, isn't it? Just watch this, will you? You know, I used to think that when God opened the windows of heaven and opened the floodgates, it was like one of those medieval women in the street that opened the windows and chucked all the water out and whoever was below. But you know what? This is what floodgates are like. I've watched a lot of videos of floodgates this week. And it goes from a trickle to a torrent, doesn't it? It starts small and it grows and grows and grows and then there's gallons and gallons and gallons of water pouring out of the floodgates and I think that's what God is doing and whether we're talking finance trickling and then becoming a torrent or whether we're talking people coming to know Jesus a trickle and then a torrent or we're talking lives transformed as people go debt free the hungry are fed people find self-esteem and jobs they are free from isolation and find a home and a family 
It doesn't matter. Because when we began this journey five years ago, we had no idea what God would see for us to do. And it is a trickle that will become a torrent because as soon as you open the floodgates, that is what occurs. God says, test me in this and see if I will not open the floodgates of heaven. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to test him? To trust him? To take the dare? To see what he will do? To be obedient? I quite fancy seeing the floodgates of heaven opened. I think that'd be quite exciting. Like when you're in a really hot country, it's been dry all day and then there's this deluge. You dance in the rain. Do you want to do that? Stories told of a man who had a dream. He had this dream. He had no idea what it meant. And so he ran to the vicar's house. Always run to the vicar's house, by the way, if you have a dream and you don't know what it means. (laughs) And he said, I really need you to help me to understand it. He said, well, the dream is this. I can see a room And in the middle of the room is a man with a wallpaper table and wallpaper, rolls and rolls of wallpaper. Sorry, my voice is (coughs) running out. (laughs) And he said, the man is, is getting the brush and he's gluing the paper and then he's putting the paper up on the walls of the room. And even as he's doing that, well, first of all, a crack appeared in one wall and then another crack appeared in another wall. And as he keeps on gluing and sticking and pasting the paper up, there's just more and more cracks that are appearing around the walls of the room. And so the vicar, being a deeply spiritual man, says, well, just give me a little bit of time. I want to think and pray about this dream that you have had. And so they both sit there and quiet as the vicar speaks to God about what the dream might mean. And after some while, he says to the man who's come to see him, the man in the center of the room with a wallpaper, he's the devil. The man seems a little bit surprised. And he said, but the cracks in the wall symbolize the prayers of God's people. And then the man who's had the dream starts jumping up and down and laughing and cheering, getting really overexcited. And the vicar says, why are you so excited? He said, because the devil's only got half a roll of wallpaper left. (laughs) You know, I think think that's where we are. I really do. I think that our prayer over this past period of time, and it was really significant on Wednesday night, we had a great night together, have started to bring those cracks in the walls. And it started with like one crack, which seemed pretty insignificant. But then there have been more and more cracks. And more of the life of Jesus has been pouring in, actually. And our giving may seem small, but God was speaking to me even again this morning saying, you know what? I fed 5,000 people with a boy's packed lunch. I overthrew an army of Midianites with 300 people and a jar and a trumpet and a light. 
You know, do not worry about that. I can do it. As we give, the walls break down. It is about our persistence and perseverance. We see the cracks as people's lives are transformed. And the devil keeps on trying to paper over the wall, but eventually he's going to run out of paper. You know, this has been a really tough month for those of us on the staff team. I'm not saying it hasn't for any of the rest of you. I don't necessarily know. Yesterday afternoon, I was preaching at the funeral of one of my best friends in London. Whilst we were there, someone ran into our car and bashed up all the wing of it. But it's been a catalogue of things like that, almost to the point. You know, God wants to do this. And his time is now. His time is now. The cracks are running down the walls. The devil's running out of paper. And we need to keep on praying, keep on giving our time, our gifts, our finance, whatever it is. We need to give to God what he has asked us to give. And then he will open the windows of heaven. He will open the floodgates and pour out his blessing so that we cannot contain it. Well, then that'll be a whole other set of questions. But our challenge to ourselves and to you is what is God asking us to give to him? How does he want us to respond to him so that the floodgates of heaven can be open? Amen.